Barnabas is one of those guys that you can kind of overlook very quickly because there's nothing flashy about him. He is an example of goodness. It's been a reminder to me this week as I've uh, looked at these passages on Barnabas, how important it is for people to be good. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the difficulty of that word good. But it's important that people be good. One of the things that I believe God blesses about this church is that we've got a lot of good people in it. Not perfect people. Uh, we all have our flaws and our hang-ups and our anxieties, but good people that, that care about others, that want to do the best, that are willing to give and to serve and to, to do whatever is required or asked of them. When I, when I look at Barnabas, I see one of these pictures of a man that, that God uses greatly, and God uses different methods. Uh, let me just give you three right off the top here. First of all, he uses history to inform us. God informs us in history. Many of the books of the Old Testament are historical books. They give us a historical reference for what God does and how God works. And you see repeated patterns in history when people obey God and when they deny God and when they walk away from Him. Secondly, He gives us doctrine to instruct us how to live, how we are to act in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ, how are we to live? Well, doctrinal words give us the information that we need to instruct us, and then examples to inspire us. Examples to inspire us. Now, let's just go a little deeper with that, and let's look at it this way. In the Gospels, we see the picture of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd. We see how much God loved us when he gave his son to die for us. And if you are here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, in a few moments you're going to have an opportunity to publicly give your life to Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell us who the great I Am is, who Jesus is, and what he did for us. But now when we get to the epistles, we kind of go into the classroom. We begin to learn and we begin to be instructed in what the Christian life looks like, what behavior patterns should be in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we, when we get to the people of the Bible in Acts, you can view Acts as a picture gallery. These are flash photos, moments of people who came on the scene. Some were there longer than others, but they influenced, they changed the course of religion. They changed the course of the world. They changed the course of thousands, if not millions, of lives. So when I look at this picture gallery, I see God showing us the kind of people He can use, and they're not the kind of people that the world would pick. That's why 1 Corinthians says that they're not many wise, not many noble, not many rich, because God's chosen the foolish things. To confound the wise. Uh, we went to an uh, art gallery when we were in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. We went to the Getty Museum. I, I thought it was called the Gaudy, but I guess it's called the Getty. Uh, and we went to the Impressionist art area, and, and quite honestly, I wasn't very impressed. I, I figured out what an Impressionist artist is. It's somebody that goes to Lowe's, 
gets some paint, throws it on a mat, and goes, that's art. Well, then why did my mother spank me when I did that in my bedroom when I was five? <laughs> I was just making art. You know, when your kids take crayons and draw on the wall, and they're just making art. Now, don't do that, guys and gals. Don't, you don't want a beating over that. But. but here's a picture gallery, and in particular, I want us to stop and look at three pictures of Barnabas. We're going to begin in Acts 4, we're going to go to Acts 9, and then we're going to go to Acts 11. These three summary sections of Scripture on the life of Barnabas, strategic moments that pop up on the pages of Scripture about this man that if we're not careful, we would forget, we would ignore, and we would miss a world changer. Acts 4 and verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Now here's a man who is called a, a son of encouragement, Barnabas, by the apostles. It means that in the the weariness of the work and the, the explosive growth of the church, here's a man who takes time to say thank you. Here's a man who takes time to encourage Peter and John when they stand against the religious leaders of the time. Acts 9, verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about this. Here's a guy who's had papers to persecute and arrest and kill Christians. And Barnabas runs the risk of sitting down and listening to him tell his story. He's willing to put himself out there on behalf of a guy that is known as a persecutor and a hater of this new sect called Christianity. Then in Acts chapter 11, we see him again. Here's a man who just, hey, you know what? That guy's just an encourager. He's such an encouragement. I just love being around that guy. Now in Acts chapter 11, he moves on to a deeper ministry in verse 19. Acts 11 and verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now here's the key verse on Barnabas. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, here's the difficulty. We have so overused the word good. In fact, we use a term, well, that's pretty good. That's, that's good. It's pretty good. We, we've overused that term good. And, and, you know, and so what people in other parts of the country think about, when they think about us, they think of good old boys. You know, we got a lot of good old boys that can whip up on other good old boys. And some good old boys that need to be whipped up on. But good is, is not good in that it is a natural goodness. That's not what this word is talking about when it talks about Barnabas. When he says he's good, well, we know no one is good but God. And, and we know in Romans 3, it says there's none that does good. Here's the thought that has crept into our mental DNA, that sin writes history, but goodness is silent. You know, Nixon played on the, the, the silent majority. And the reality is there are a lot of good people and a lot of good things going on, a lot of great ministries going on, good stuff going on, but you're never going to get the news crew to show out with a camera and cover that. You see, sin writes history. What writes history? The car wreck, the tragedy, the accident, the embassy being attacked, the ambassador being killed. That writes history, while goodness is silent. Nobody comes and interviews you to find out what good things you are doing. Now, if you get busted, they're going to come and find out. But they don't come to look for goodness. Uh, Dr. John uh, Gossip, who was a preacher of another era, said, It is held by many as the first axiom that holiness is a dull affair, and God's company intolerably dreary, and that for vividness, color, and interest, you must look elsewhere. In other words, if I want to live an exciting life, being good is not going to get me there. But it is the cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus. It is the visitation to the prison. It is the feeding of the poor. It is the ministry to the orphans, and it is the ministry to the widows that God says is good religion. Good religion doesn't proclaim to be peaceful and kill people. Good religion does good things whether anybody's noticing or not. Now, Barnabas is not naturally good. It's not even saying he's morally good or legally good. There is a goodness in him. If you look back at verse 24, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Here's a man that is like John Bunyan's great heart character in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he moves through the story showing compassion and goodness, considering others above himself. So when we think of good, the difficulty that we have is thinking of good in a way that is not related to good by the power of being full of the Holy Spirit. That's what real goodness looks like. Secondly, there's a description of him. There's a description of him. First of all, he was a generous man. You, you see that in verses 36 and 37. He, here's a man who understood the difference between stewardship and ownership. You know, we can say, I own my house, and I own my car, and I own this, and I own that. But in reality, we are stewards of what we have. 
We are stewards of the things that we've been blessed with. And he understood that. Here's a Levite. Now, Levites weren't supposed to own anything, but over the course of time, the Levites had gathered possessions. And, and so here's a man who is very wealthy, very well off. He has land, he has property, he, he has items of great value. But when he meets the great high priest, he has a different view of his possessions. He looks at what he has differently. And he goes and he sells it all and he brings it to the church. Now you say, well, that's socialism. No, socialism steals some good truths of Christianity. Here's what was happening. You need to see this in the context. When these Jewish believers got saved, they lost their jobs. Because when you walked away from the Jewish faith and became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you were disassociated by your family and by your friends. You were treated as dead. They would have a funeral to bury you, although you were still alive. They had no way to get a living. I mean, when you live in Jerusalem and everybody there is Jewish, and if you become a Christian, nobody's going to hire you. I mean, you want to know what the unemployment rate was in the early church? 100%. They, they had no way of making money. Nobody would do business with them. And so they had to find ways to meet the need of the church body that had gathered together in the name of Jesus. They were rejected by their families. They needed a church family to come to, to have ministry and encouragement, and they needed resources. And two times in Acts, Acts 4 and Acts 11, one of the things you see that Barnabas is doing is he's taking care of hungry people. Now, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but I want you to mark down Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, because Leviticus 19, back in the Levitical law, which Barnabas would have known because he was a Levite, in the Levitical law, it, law, it talked about leaving the sheaves when you went through in the harvest and leaving grapes on the tree and not going back. Why did they leave those? for people that didn't have anything so they would have something to eat. That is found in the story of Ruth as she go and, goes and gleans from the fields and Boaz says, you make sure you don't pick up everything. You make sure there's something left for her to pick up so her family can be fed. Now here's a biblical reference for why we do what we do in feeding the homeless and in meeting the needs of other people. Isaiah 58.10. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail." In our missions offering that we give every year and take up all through the year, 5% of our missions offering goes to world hunger. I, I can remember in uh, the early 1990s when my cousin, who is a missionary in Kenya, called me. There were refugees pouring into Kenya. There were people in refugee camps, and they had no money. And we sent $5,000 to Kenya to feed 3,000 people for 10 days with $5,000.
because all they did was buy them rice and buy them bread so that they would have something to sustain them. When you give to the missions offering of this church, guess what you do? Part of what you do goes to feeding people around the world who could not be fed otherwise. Children, people in times of famine. Now, Jesus fed the hungry people, and you say, yeah, and they all walked away from him. I think Jesus gave us an example here. You do what's right whether people follow you or not. You do what's right. You don't even say, well, you know, they're not going to join our church. Well, you don't feed people for them to join your church. You feed people to show them the love of Jesus that you care when the world doesn't. That you are in the business of ministering to people and helping them. If you want to be a world changer, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I see myself as an owner or a steward? Am I somebody that sees myself and my attitude toward money? Is it God's first or mine first? How do I view my possessions? It is required, the scripture says, of stewards that they be found faithful. So here's a man who's generous in giving. Secondly, he had a great spirit. He had a great spirit, especially when people are concerned. Now, let's all admit, okay, just take a deep breath and let's all admit you live long enough and you can get very jaded and callous about people. Right? This way means yes. This way means no. I mean, you live long enough, you get burned enough, you get mistreated enough, you get told enough lies, and, and you, you go out there on a limb for somebody and they, they saw the tree down to get to you. You can get a little jaded. Barnabas wasn't that way. Here is a man who had a great spirit. Now, Paul is in a predicament. Paul has been saved on the road to Damascus. And he's coming to Jerusalem. And guess what? Here's a guy. He's got no friends. None. I mean, you talk about being the new kid at school and nobody knowing who you are. This guy's the new kid. And not only does anybody not know who they are, they, when they know him, they already don't like him. I mean, he can't even get within five feet of the cool kid's table. He's way out of bounds. He knows that he's probably going to be rejected by the church, and he suspects that the Sanhedrin that had given him papers to persecute Christians are now going to do the same to him. Here's a man that needs a friend. He needs somebody with a big heart. And Saul has been persecuting them, and the church is suspicious. Now, you think about it. If there's somebody that is persecuting Christians and all of a sudden he shows up and says, hey, guess what? I changed. I don't do that anymore. You know, there's going to be a group of people standing at the door going, yeah, right, watch him. Put security around him. We don't believe him. I mean, he, you know, he could be here to take names so he can turn us into the Sanhedrin. He could be, he could be a plot. This could all be a scam to get our names and to find out where we live and to come after us. And they didn't believe he was a disciple. Verse 27 again, but Barnabas, Acts 9, took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. Well, you got to admire the courage of Barnabas. I mean, we know about Peter and we know about Paul and we know about John and we, we know about some of the disciples, but you really got to admire the courage of Barnabas. 
I mean, he ran a risk just to even sit down and listen to his testimony. But here's a man who says to Paul, welcome to the family of God. We're glad to have you here. Come join me. Go out to eat with me. He gives the man a chance. And one of the great men I had an opportunity to meet a couple of times in my life was Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was the hatchet man for Richard Nixon. He's considered at the time of the Nixon administration to be the meanest, toughest, most cutthroat member of Nixon's inner circle. Chuck Colson got saved. He was found guilty, he was sent to jail, and he got saved. Shortly after he was saved and had gotten out of prison, he was invited to go back to the White House for a prayer meeting in the West Wing. Now here is a man who would take you down in a second. He would destroy your life to further the goals of Richard Nixon. He knew no conscience. And now he's gotten saved. And he's invited into the same White House where he had plotted the destruction of political opponents. And he goes to this prayer meeting. Harold Hughes brought him. Now the significance of bringing Chuck Colson by Harold Hughes is Harold Hughes was the victim of one of Colson's dirtiest, meanest, most vile tricks against him. He had every reason to hold a grudge. He had every reason to keep him out. But Hughes invited Colson to come back to the White House, and he got up and spoke about how Christ had changed his life. He had every reason to hate Chuck Colson, but when he met him and saw him as a brother in Christ, he embraced him as a brother. This is what Hughes said. Hughes said, I've learned how wrong it is to hate. By hating, I was shutting Christ's love out of my life. One of the men I hated most was Chuck Colson. But now that we share a commitment to Christ, I love him as a brother. I would trust him with my life, my family, and with everything I have. And then he called on Colson to close in prayer. Can you imagine the shock in that room? Colson said, I sat there with tears in my eyes, not imagining that I would ever be accepted or embraced, thinking how people thought about me. He said, when I got through praying and those men in that room gathered around me and loved me and encouraged me and welcomed me into the family of God, it was one of the great moments of my life. Now here's a man who could have called the President of the United States at any moment of any day anywhere in the world. But the greatest moment of his life was when Harold Hughes stood up and said, I like this guy. I trust this guy. I don't know what your past dealings are with him, but I've had some past dealings with him. But he's my brother, and I trust him with everything I've got. Now, it continues in Acts chapter 11. The church has moved out to Antioch. Persecution has come. And the church has gone to Antioch. And God's beginning to do a great work in Antioch. Remember, it's at Antioch where they were first called Christians. And so the church sends Barnabas to check out what's happening. Now remember, 
they're Jewish believers. Some people went and just shared with the Jews only. And then there are other people from Cyprus and Cyrene who are sharing with the Gentiles. And so there has to be some tension here. There's a little bit of tension because Jews didn't care much for the Gentiles and Gentiles didn't care much for the Jews. And so there's some tension here. So guess who they send? They send a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, who can understand both sides of the argument, both sides of the issue, and they send him in to check it out. And immediately, Barnabas sees that they're doing a great work, and God is moving in their midst, but he realizes, I need some help. I, I can't do this on my own. Now, here's a great man with a great spirit, but he knows he's over his head here. And so he goes to Tarshish, and he starts looking for Saul. Now, between the time in Acts 9 and in Acts 11 is about 9 to 10 years. So for 9 to 10 years, Saul has been accepted by the church but he's kind of disappeared. He's kind of gone off to Tarsus. He's kind of doing his own ministry, and he's not really involved with the other apostles. He, he's just kind of serving and working. We don't really know a lot about what he's doing, but Barnabas knows where he is. He's got his cell phone number programmed in. And so he calls him and says, I'm coming to get you. Pack your bags. And so he goes to Tarsus and he finds Saul and he brings him back. Why? Because Barnabas knew after observing the situation, I need someone who is very solid in Old Testament scripture and someone who understands the influence of Greek philosophy. I need someone to take over the prominent role here. And, and so here you have a man who goes and gets Saul, Paul, he goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. Now take a deep breath and think about this. If Barnabas had one ounce of pride and ego in his life, he would have never done that. A lesser man would never go find a greater man to do something for him. A lesser man will always try to find a way to stay the, in his own eyes the greater person. Here he goes and gets this man who can deal with the problems and the possibilities. Let, let me tell you something. Whether you're young or old, if pride keeps you from sharing the platform, it will keep you from being a good man. That's right. Amen. Uh, I, I've served with pastors that would never let anybody else preach. In fact, I served with a pastor... He was only gone one Sunday every year, never gone for Sunday on vacation, never did anything. You know, nobody else ever baptized but him. Never gone but one Sunday because he didn't want anybody else to preach. I, I served with a pastor, and I preached a lot, and it got to the point where I was preaching as much as he was. He had issues with that. Can I tell you something? Pride doesn't share the platform. But when you're interested in the glory of God, you don't take credit for things. You allow God to use who he wants to use. It's real important, folks, that we understand this 
Because there's some people that, you know, if they're not in the front and if they're not the lead dog and if they're not the one being interviewed and if they're not the one getting credit, if they're not the one being recognized in the Christian community, I mean, we've got our own celebrities and stars in the Christian community. And if their 15 minutes of fame ever goes out, they're going to be in trouble. You know, I, I know people that have sung on stages before tens of thousands of people that are now ministers of music in churches with three or 400 people in them. Their day in the limelight is over, but they're still serving faithfully. Amen. Some people, if they can't get the limelight, they're not interested. By the way, have you ever heard a pastor leave a bigger church and go to a smaller one? You ever, you ever thought that, you know, some of these people on TV, and they tell you they're preaching to 10,000, 20,000, 30,000? You ever thought they might go plant a church in Salt Lake City and see how that goes for them? But sometimes pride won't let us give up the platform. But if we don't, if we refuse to allow God to use other people, then when we stand before God, it will be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble when we face Jesus. Here's a perspective I think we all need to understand. No matter who we are, no matter what we are, no matter who anybody thinks they are, you ought to go to bed at night and just think this. I ought to be good because it's right to be good. And I ought to be an encourager because it's right to be an encourager. Because the last time I checked, there are 7 billion people on this planet that don't have a clue you're alive. So you might as well just do it for Jesus and quit worrying about it. The world knows you. Just be faithful where you are. That's what Barnabas did. Barnabas looked around and said, hey, there's a need here, and Paul can help fill it. I love what William Carey said. Carey said, when I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. He had an infectious spirit, Acts 4, 36. He was a son of encouragement. That name was given to him by the apostles because it described his character. I wonder what name would describe some people's character. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think there's some people in this world, <laughs> a lot of politicians, that their, their name would be liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> there, there's some people that their name would be flirt or lazy or callous, or cold. Here's a man who's described by something good. He had a way of changing the climate when he walked into a room. You know, I don't know if you know anybody like this. I, I know some people like this. I've been around the block enough. There are some people that bless a room when they leave it. Uh, they're your relatives too, huh? Uh, interesting. Here's a man that blessed a room when he showed up. There are some people that seem to have the gift of discouragement. I mean, they can never say anything good. They can never say anything positive. It's always, yeah, but you could have done better. Yeah, but you could have done this. Yeah, but, and they're always picking. But here's a man with the gift of encouragement. Some people spend their life focusing on wanting talents and gifts. I mean, you know, you see people, oh, I, I want the gifts of the Spirit. I want, I want the great gifts. I want the gift of prophecy. I want the gift of tongues. I want the gift of healings. I don't see anybody walk around, God, give me the gift of helps. Let me just be a helper. 
Let me just be an encourager. And yet it is one of the great gifts of God. Somebody who knows how to lift other people up. Somebody who writes a prayer card. Somebody who visits a widow. Somebody who goes to a nursing home. Somebody who walks into a hospital room. Somebody who sits by someone when there's been a death or a tragic report in their family. Somebody that cares when nobody else cares. Let me tell you, Jay Strack is great. When he says, you want to know what a friend is? A friend is somebody that walks in the room when everybody else is walking out. That's a friend. Are you a friend? Do you show up and just encourage people? You write a letter at an appropriate time, make a phone call in a moment, you just get prompted by God, I need to call them, just say a word to them. And through the years, I've had people that have call and leave a voicemail and just say, it didn't have anything to do, just wanted to call you and tell you I was praying for you today. That's a gift of encouragement. Here's a man who had a great gift and a great, look at the results of being this kind of guy. Verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Here's a good man with great impact. Now, there's another thing. He had a servant spirit. Uh, verse 25 of chapter 11, he left for Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Then if you read on, you find that there was a, going to be a famine. And so they took up an offering. And after they had taken up the offering, verse 30, this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. I love what one writer said about Barnabas. He said he was a good man behind a great man. What a testimony. A good man behind a great man. And then there's the dynamic. He was a man who had a fresh faith. He, he didn't live in the past. You don't see him in Acts chapter 11 saying, well, let me just tell you what all I've done for Jesus. You know, the only reason Saul's here is because of me. He lived in the moment for what God could do in the moment with his life. He was a man who was fearless. He put himself in some very tough situations. He was a man who was passionate. He had a sense of purpose. And here's what I discover about these world changers in the book of Acts. Number one, the fullness of the Spirit is the key to power. The fullness of the Spirit is the key to power. You know how you can be good? I tell you. In this world, as jaded as we can become, as mean-spirited as we can be, as callous as we can be, we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit to have power. Amen. Just to be good. Much less to do anything great. I mean, just to be good. Just to turn the other cheek. Just to go the second mile. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Secondly, the fullness of the Spirit is available to any and all who surrender to Christ. Here's a man who has surrendered his life to Christ. He's not a great evangelist. He's not a great missionary. He's an encourager. That's his calling. That's his job. That's what's in his DNA. He's an encourager. Henry Drummond said in the New Testament alone, the Spirit is referred to nearly 300 times and the one word constantly associated with the Spirit is power. Now, I want you to think about this. 
Some of you may be saying, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if this did anything for me today. You know, I try to be good. I try to be nice. Can I tell you something? You never know who you touch. You never know who you touch. Now, I want you to think about Barnabas for a second and stay with me because we're about 90 seconds from being through. There's a little rift between Paul and Barnabas. They're about to go on a second missionary journey. And so Barnabas says, okay, I'll go pick up John Mark. And Paul says, no, you're not. And he says, yes, we are. And he says, no, you're not. Yes, we are. No, you're not. And they had an argument. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John Mark and they basically go off the scene. You don't see Barnabas really after Acts chapter 11. Until Paul gets to the end of his life. And Paul writes a letter to Timothy. Now listen, here's a guy that Paul wrote off. I think Paul was a high D type A personality. He didn't have a lot of patience. Here's the guy he wrote off. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, there's still some good in that boy. I'm going to take him and work with him. And at the end of his life, in a prison, about to have his head taken off, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, bring John Mark with you because he is good for service. By the way, that word in the Greek means he was asking him to go get John Mark to perform the same ministry John Mark had performed on the first missionary journey. What if Barnabas had given up on John Mark? Second, what if Barnabas had not stood up for Paul? Now you think about it. Here's a guy, he's just an encourager. You know, put your arm around somebody and say, man, Stay in the battle. Stay with the fight. Just an encourager. Just lifting people up. We wouldn't have Mark's gospel, and we wouldn't have 13 letters written by Paul. Do you realize that one man that most people wouldn't have paid attention to influenced the two men that wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament? Don't tell me being good, full of the Holy Spirit doesn't matter. Those of you that are teaching our children and our students, those of you that are pouring in to other people, those of you that greet somebody in the parking lot or at the doors, can I tell you something? You don't know who you're going to touch. You don't know the life that you're going to influence. Nobody knew that Paul was going to become what he was. But Barnabas took a risk and he took a bet. And because of that, we have all these letters from Paul to teach us how to live the Christian life. So I want to ask you a question. Who are you encouraging? And who can you encourage? Let's stand together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now, hopefully, while I've been preaching this message, and you're, you're in an attitude of prayer, hopefully while I've been preaching this message, God has shown you somebody that you need to encourage. 
somebody that you need to put an arm around, somebody that you need to write a note to, someone you need to go visit. God's shown you somebody that you need to say, hey, I believe in you. I love you. I'm praying for you. You got that person on your heart? Now, while you're thinking about that, think about this. There's somebody on the row you're sitting on that probably needs encouragement. They may be weary in the battle. They may be tired. They may be in unbearable circumstances. And just walking in and going to church, you don't know that. You may not even know their name. But somebody in this room needs encouragement. And so the assignment of the day is be an encourager. Lift up somebody. Encourage them. Strengthen them in the Lord. Remind them of the goodness of God. It may be that you're sitting by somebody that needs to make a public decision this morning, somebody that needs to be saved, somebody that needs to come to Christ today. And maybe the encouragement you need to give is just to turn to them in this moment and say, you know, I'll go down there with you. You don't have to walk down there by yourself. I'll go down there with you. I'll stand with you. It may be that you're standing there and you need to turn to somebody and say, I need you to pray for me right now. But whatever you need to do in these moments, I'm going to encourage you to be like Barnabas. Have a great spirit right now. Have a great spirit of goodness filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to remain in an attitude of prayer. And as we sing, you come and respond to the invitation of God.